Okay, this is what did you expect? It, this is still um, the eyes wide open chapter. I got cut off and I'm starting again tonight. So I think I was somewhere right about here. Um, you have to be willing to go through tough and sometimes tense moments of honesty to get things on the table that need to be examined and discussed. You have to be willing to get up early and stay up late because there are things you need to finish between you. You have to be willing to open up your marriage to God and others, getting the help you need for things you are facing. You have to remind yourself daily of the amazing resources of grace that you have been given and celebrate. You have to resist giving way to cynicism and discouragement. You have to battle giving way to anger or fear. You have to fight the what-ifs and the if-onlys. You really do have to believe that God will always supply what is needed at the moment it is needed. You have to pay attention to your marriage and remember him. You have to watch and pray. Your marriage may be good. It may be great. You may have grown together in appreciation, respect, unity, understanding, and love. You may have learned where problems typically exist for you as a couple. And you may have learned how to solve them together. You may have identified places where you and your marriage need to mature. You may have created a lifestyle of honest communication and efficient problem solving. You may have forged a solid and enjoyable friendship between you. You may be able to look back and be thankful because you recognize that what you once were compared to what you are now. But there is one thing that you need to accept. Your marriage may be great, but it is not safe. No marriage this side of eternity is totally problem protected. No marriage is all that it could be. This side of heaven, daily temptations are constant threats to you and your marriage. This side of heaven, the spiritual war goes on. This, this side of heaven, good marriages are good marriages because the people in those marriages are committed to doing daily the things that keep their marriages good. They can retire. Things go wrong when couples think they have reached the point when they can retire from the marital work and chill out, lie back, and slide. Perhaps the greatest danger to a good marriage is a good marriage because when things are good, we are tempted to give way to feelings of arrival and forsake the attitudes and disciplines that have, by God's grace, made our marriage what it has become, <laughs> what it looks like to coast. So maybe you're thinking, Paul, I get the point. We cannot allow ourselves to coast and we need to keep watching our marriage, but I'm not sure I know what coasting looks like. Well, let me give you six characteristics of coast, of a coasting couple. One, visual lethargy. In some way, at some point, we all quit looking. Some place in all of our lives, we live with lazy eyes. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. The first time you drove to work, you were wide-eyed and attentive because you didn't know where you were going. You marked down particular landmarks on your mental notebook so that you would remember your journey a second time. For the first few weeks, you watched your surroundings closely as you drove, making sure that you identified your markers and made all of your turns. But after a while, it didn't seem so necessary to pay much such atten careful attention. After a while, you quit looking. Someone new rides with you and says, Hey, when did the gas station close? And you say, I don't know. I didn't notice that it was closed. You didn't notice because at some point you quit looking. At some point you began to be preoccupied and easily distracted. Your drives to work were occupied with coffee and scone, messing with the radio and texting while driving. There are now times when you get to work and don't remember stopping at lights or making those important turns. You don't remember because you have quit looking. You are suffering from visual lethargy. Luella and I have recently moved. From our previous location, we had to take a beautiful tree-lined winding road along a river to get to the center city of Philadelphia. Recently, we were in our old neighborhood and had to drive that road again. We both remarked how beautiful the drive was. As we were talking, I was thinking about how many times I drove the road and did not see its beauty. 
To use another illustration, maybe you're at an art fair and you have no intention of making a purchase. You are just there because it's something fun to do. But as you're strolling from booth to booth, a painting reaches out and grabs you. You say to your spouse, come here for a minute. You have to got to see this. After what seems to be an interminable negotiation, you're putting the painting in the car. You know exactly where you're going to hang it. And for the first few days, you pause and look and smile when you're in the room where the painting is. You can't believe that you own it. You are impressed with how it changes the atmosphere of your entire room. You are very grateful that it is yours. You reason that it needs proper light, so you have some track lighting installed. You notice that the pillows on the leather chair clash with the colored themes of the painting, so you buy new pillows. When you have guests, you proudly show them the painting, and you share with them the story behind it. But there comes a point where you are no longer aware of your prized purchase. There comes a time when you don't smile anymore when you walk by. There comes a time when a visitor is sitting in the room with you and says, I love the painting, and you say, we got it a few years ago at a fair someplace. And you go on with the conversation. You are no longer excited because you are no long, You no longer see. You are living with lazy eyes. It takes an insider to get you to focus for a moment on what once captured your attention. You are suffering from visual lethargy and you probably don't know it. Such is the state of many married couples. Beth and Eric had their eyes wide open during courtship. They listened and watched one another carefully. Beth hung on Eric's every word, and Eric watched all Beth's reactions. They were always on the lookout for problems that might arise between them, and they were, they were quick to solve what needed to be solved. There wasn't much about their relationship that they took for granted, and they didn't mind being good students in the, in the laboratory room of the School of Love. The early days of their marriage were much the same. Beth couldn't believe that she had actually been blessed to marry a man like Eric, and Eric knew that in marrying Beth, he had married way above his pay grade. <laughs> they worked at their marriage, both being afraid to mess up the good thing that they had been given. But at some point, as the years rolled on, their eyes got lazy and their schedules got busy. At some point, they began to feel that they were okay, and they began to coast. At some point, they quit noticing the blessings. At some point, they quit being thankful and watchful. And when they quit, they began to let things creep into their marriage that they would not have tolerated before. Because they quit paying attention, they quit noticing things that needed attention. And because they quit noticing, they quit working on the things that needed work. Lazy eyes were a major part of what led their marriage to disaster. Where is there evidence in your marriage that you have been living with lazy eyes? 2. Habit and Consistency there is no doubt about it. A marriage of unity, understanding, and love is a result of good attitudes, which result in the instituting of good habits. There are many examples of the importance of good habits in your life if you just look around. When you purchase a new car, you are very aware that it is new, and you are very committed to keeping it that way. You don't think that you, your new automobile will keep itself washed on the outside, clean on the inside, and mechanically maintained. You accept the reality that if your car is going to remain clean and in good working order, you have to approach it with the work ethic of good habits. You don't mind doing these things because you like your car. You are pleased with it, that it belongs to you, and it is a source of pride for you to keep it well maintained. The weekly washing and vacuuming, the warranty inspections, and the regular oil changes aren't hassles for you. No, they are things you want to do because you appreciate your new car. You even buy special gadgets, cleaners, and deodorizers to keep things fresh and clean. And when you are driving, you listen for sounds that may indicate that something is not right with your car. The problem is that at some point your car is not new anymore. It doesn't smell new since you spilt coffee on the way to work. When you drive it, you make so it makes sounds it didn't make when it was new. And besides, you seem to have gotten a whole lot busier since you bought the car. And finding time to keep it clean and the oil change is not as easy as it once was. At some point, it doesn't bother you that there are weeks worth of empty Starbucks cups on the back floor of your car. And you really don't mind that it's not clean. 
you have begun to let go of the good habits of auto maintenance, and you probably haven't noticed, but your car begins to pay the price. One morning, quite unexpectedly, you go out to start your car, the oil light comes on, and the car won't start. You are surprised because you didn't know that anything was wrong. For months, for months ago, you simply quit paying attention, and you forsook the habits that would have kept your car in good repair. Beth and Eric started their life together committed to good habits. They committed to humble approachability, wholesome communication, rapid problem solving, quick conflict resolution, spiritual communion, and patterns of forgiveness, and to communicate thankfulness and to build trust. These commitments resulted in a marriage that was good, godly, enjoyable, and fulfilling, and they both grew in the process, but they began to feel all too satisfied and all too comfortable, and they began to let their good habits slide. They began to allow themselves to go to bed in the middle of the conflict. Sure, they would say that they were, would discuss it in the morning, but they seldom did. They began to allow themselves to step away from habits of wholesome communication and say things they would not have allowed themselves to say earlier. <laughs> there were times when they failed to seek or grant forgiveness, telling themselves that it was little thing, a little thing and wouldn't make any difference. They became more and more inconsistent in doing the good things that make a marriage loving, peaceful, and sturdy. The more they became inconsistent, the more their marriage suffered until they reached a point where it seemed to them that they had an insurmountable set of problems, and they were overwhelmed at the thought of continuing. Are there good habits that were once a regular part of your life together that you have now forsaken? 3. Laziness. I drove by it almost every day for years, and I couldn't believe that what I was seeing. It didn't happen overnight, but it happened nonetheless, and it was sad to see. It was a beautiful house with a complicated, cross-shaped roof. It was beautiful the way the gables all came together in the center. I thought about what a source of pride it must have given the builder when the house was completed and he was able to stand back and take a look. It was the nicest house on the block, but there was a problem. The house was inhabited by lazy people. You could tell that by the lawn, which was closer to, by, to needing to be baled than mowed, and by the bushes that had quickly grown widely in every direction. One morning as I drove by, I noticed a small tarp over one part of the roof. Now a tarp only means one thing. The roof is leaking and needs repair. The tarp nailed down to a leaky roof is not a repair. No, it is what you do as an emergency measure until you can get the roof properly repaired. But the tarp stayed there and was soon accompanied by another tarp. It was too long before the it wasn't too long before the entire roof had been tarped, but no repairs seemed to be in sight. Some of the tarps had been on the roof so long that they had frayed and torn and now flapped in the breeze. There was no way that the patchwork of tarps created the kind of moisture barrier that a properly shingled roof would. So under those lazy tarps, the structure of the house was absorbing moisture and slowly deteriorating. I remember the day I saw workers removing the tarps, but over the next few days, I realized they were removing more. They, remo they removed the roof and the sheathing and the gable structures themselves. Lazy neglect had rendered the roof irreparable. And if the family was going to continue to live there, a major structural renovation would have to be done. Laziness is destructive to anything that needs to be maintained. Yet there are many lazy marriages out there. Well, to be more accurate, the marriages aren't lazy. It's the people in them that are. They want good marriages, but they just don't want to do the work necessary to keep them healthy. Beth and Eric got tired of the hard work. They somehow fantasized that their marriage would remain good. Long after they had quit working on it in their laziness, Beth and Eric became quite skilled at throwing tarps over the roof leaks. When offended, they would say, it's okay. When it really wasn't okay, in their laziness, they would try to squeeze a big conversation in a little moment. In their laziness, they sheltered themselves from one another by busyness and entertainment. But the leaks in their marriage got bigger. It wasn't long before the structures that were holding them together 
became weak and rotten. Laziness was a part of what had rendered their marriage virtually unlivable. Where is laziness damaging the health and beauty of your marriage? Four, impatience. I would like to say that I am patient, but I am not. I would like to say that I am always willing to wait, but I am not. I would like to say that I have learned the value of waiting, but I am still learning. I would like to be able to confess that I have seen the value of approaching my marriage with a process mentality, but I don't always appreciate the process. There are times when I would like instant marriage, you know, just add water and stir. But when I resist the process that makes a marriage beautiful and demand things in an instant, I am not resisting marriage or resisting my wife. No, I am resisting God. It is God who designed change to be the process and not an event. It is God who chose to put flawed people together in the intensity and close proximity to the intimacy of marriage. It is God who designed marriage to expose your heart and take you beyond the borders of your own strength and wisdom and to mature and grow you as you quit relying on yourself and begin to seek the help that only God can give. It is God who it is God who created marriage as a workroom to form you into the person who who loves as you have been loved and finds joy in giving the same kind of grace that you have been given. It is God who knows that the messiness of marriage would be productive in advancing the work that he began in us when he adopted us as children. Every marriage between the fall and eternity is in the middle of a lifelong process of change. Your marriage can be better than it once was, but it is not yet all that it could be. In marriage, you are meant to grow together in an increasingly maturing love and to grow personally in your love and service of the Lord. You see, patience in marriage is vital because the goal of marriage is greater than marriage. The goal of marriage from God's perspective is not that you would reach some mutually agreed upon plateau of romantic interpersonal happiness. No, God's goals are much wider and much and more beautiful than that. God's goal is that your marriage would be a major tool in his wise and loving hands to rescue you from claustrophobic self-worship and form you into a person who lives for nothing smaller than his kingdom, his righteousness, and his glory. God's goal is to transform you at the casual core of your personhood, your heart. He is working so that everything you think, desire, say, and do is done in loyal and joyful service to him. God's goal is not to deliver to you your well-thought-through dream of personal happiness. No, his goal is nothing less than holiness, or as Peter says, that you may become partakers of the divine nature. Eric and Beth began to grow impatient. Beth would say, Eric, how many times do I have to tell you? Eric would complain, she does the same thing over and over again, even though she knows it drives me crazy. They both began to see opportunities to grow as obstacles in the way of the good life, and they worked harder to at moving the obstacles than they did at growing. In their demandingness and impatience, rather than learning from their problems and progressively learning how to solve or avoid them, they repeated them over and over and over again. Again and again, they settled for instantaneous solutions that did not get to the heart of the matter. They wanted more in an instant. They wanted more in an instant, but the, what they got was less. And they play. And there and are there places where you are demanding in an instant what will only be formed in a process. Five, responding in discouragement. There is an insightful little directive in Psalm thirty-seven eight. Do not be afraid; it will only lead to evil. My translation, he says, there is a point in the lives of many couples when they quit responding in faith, hope, and love and begin to respond to one another in discouragement and fear. Their practical everyday responses are formed more by what they are afraid of than by what they hope for. They are more driven by discouragement at what is, th- what is than they are what is 
rather than they are by faith in what could be. They respond more out of hurt than love. Now, let's be honest. Marriage is often discouraging. We have already concluded that all of us have been disappointed in our marriages in some way. We have all had to deal with the undesirable and the unexpected. We have all sinned against one another, and we have all been sinned against. All of us look back with remorse and regret because our marriages have not been all that we hoped they would be. It is true that the person whom you love the most has the ability to hurt you the most. In some ways, we all get our dreams dashed and our expectations thwarted. So we will struggle at moments with disappointment and we will wonder if things will ever get better. And the fear of things staying the same will grip us. The problem is that you tend to tend not to make your best decisions when you are discouraged, and you usually live to regret the decisions you make out of fear. It is in moments in our marriage when we are revealed as the sinners we actually are that fighting discouragement with hope and battling doubt with faith is so important. Where do you get this hope and faith? Well, you don't get it from your husband or wife. No, you get it from the third person in your marriage, the person we are tempted to forget. You get hope when there seems to be no reason for hope than it from Emmanuel. Your Savior shed his blood and died for you. Does it make any sense that he would abandon you in your hour of need? You see, hope is not to be found in your spouse or in your circumstances. No, hope is found in one place and one place alone, in Jesus your Savior. Your brother and your friend, he loves you and he will never turn a deaf ear to your cries. So you have to fight the instinct to respond in discouragement and remember who you are and who God is and act in hope. Even when hope is hard to see, where are you tempted to respond in discouragement and fear? Six, dining with the enemy. Earlier in this book, we looked at Ephesians 4 and Paul's directive not to let the sun go down on your anger, nor give the devil an opportunity. But this is what many couples end up doing. They not only give the devil an opportunity, but they end up inviting him for dinner. How? By thinking that they have arrived and by letting go of the good habits that made their marriage a relationship of intimacy, of unity, understanding, and love. When you quit paying attention, let go of good habits, allow yourself to be lazy and impatient, and respond in discouragement, you are inviting the devil into your marriage to do his nasty work of deceit, division, and destruction. Remember, marriage is spiritual warfare. There really is good and evil. There really is someone who is the enemy of your soul, the enemy of everything good, true, wise, and beautiful. There really is someone who does not want to see you grow and change. There is someone who wants to, who fights against the unity, understanding, and love of your marriage. Living blindly and naively gives him an opportunity to destroy the good things that God has created in you and in your marriage. So we must remain alert. We must commit ourselves to being watchful. We must resist growing tired and becoming lazy. We must refuse to give way to cynicism and discouragement. We must not demand we must do these things which will we must not demand in an instant what will only come as a result of a process. We must not do these things because when we do, we are dining with the devil and that never leads to anything good. Are there places right now, right here, that in your marriage where you are giving the devil an opportunity? Restoring grace. Yes, it was true. Beth and Eric were a bit of a mess and so was their marriage, but they did the right thing. They stepped out of their secret world of discouragement and acrimony and sought help. It was hard for them to admit how bad things had become. It was hard to own how petty and divisive they had both been. It embarrassed them to admit that to things they had said and done, but they were tired and afraid and grabbed hold of hope anywhere help could be found. 
I was glad to help because I had sense of what was going on. Beth and Eric had done one disastrous thing in their mar- disastrous thing in their marriage, and it had created a mess. They had given into the delusion that they had arrived, and so they quit paying attention. Good habits waned, and bad ones took over. Laziness replaced the daily work of love, so things got progressively worse. But God met them at their moment of need and enabled them by His grace to get back up and to do good things that have to be done for a marriage ever to be what God designed it to be. There were many places where forgiveness needed needed to be sought and given. There were many habits that needed to be replaced with old habits of attentive love. There were clear places where each was being called to wait, and there were there was grace for the waiting. There were many topics they needed to discuss with a commitment to humble humble listening and wholesome speaking. But they did listen and wait and forgive, and God began to restore the unity and understanding and love that seemed to be beyond repair. They learned the importance of being committed to watch and pray, no matter how good things were, and to respond in hope, no matter how bad things seemed. And they learned that they were never alone. Amen. Praise God.